Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Healing the Nations podcast, your podcast for religious liberty, end time events, and Adventist history. And we have a very special guest that we wanted to bring in for a very long time, my dear friend, Dr. Benjamin Baker. Dr. Baker, thank you for joining us for this podcast episode. Thank you for having me, Peter. Dr. Baker, can you tell us something about yourself and what you're doing right now currently? Yes, I currently teach at three different schools, and I teach religion, history, English, and African-American studies. And I also operate blacksdahistory.org, the website, and Black SDA History, the YouTube channel. And we'll definitely have a link in the description to access those resources. Your YouTube channel has over 10,000 subscribers, is that correct? I think so, and I really wish that it had more because there are now uh, purportedly some 23 million Adventists. And if we talk about Adventist sympathizers and those who are interested in Adventism, it would be a lot more. And so I, I think that you know, Peter, that YouTube is all about algorithms. And if we were to subscribe to each other and support each other more as Adventists, I think that we would see a lot more content, a lot more Adventist content on YouTube. And that is what's needed. <laughs> we are called to be lights, and I, I think that we have a lot to offer, and perhaps we can talk more about that uh, during this podcast, but I think that we have a lot more to offer. And so when we subscribe, when we like, when we share, and I know that this is the usual YouTube drivel, but it, it actually really does help algorithms and it increases our presence on YouTube. What you can, what you can expect from Black SDA history, uh, YouTube is content, is, is advertisement free content. And so when I asked you just to subscribe or to share or to like or what have you, that has nothing to do, I, none of my stuff has ever been monetized. Probably, probably to my detriment. Everybody says you should at least do a Patreon or PayPal. Or, ah, forget it. You know, this is a ministry, and it's something that I love. And so I, I do want, to, want you to encourage. I've seen all sorts of good uh, Adventist YouTube channels. And so I, I want to encourage you to log into your, to your YouTube account and like and subscribe to all of those Adventist YouTube channels. Because this is how we get the content out to the algorithms. But still, 10,000 subscribers for African-American Adventist history is quite impressive in my book. I mean, I am just launched YouTube myself, and it's very difficult to get subscribers. Yes. I'm not even on social media. I, I think that YouTube is probably the only social media um, that, that I'm on. And so, yes, it is, it, it is pretty good, and, and praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, your specialty is the Seventh-day Adventist Church in African-American history. Is that correct? I, 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 would say, I would say that that's how I came into it, that and Ellen G. White studies. But when I was at the General Conference Archives and uh, with the Encyclopedia of Seventh-day Adventists, I, I would like to think of myself having a general feel and perhaps a general expertise that one can truly have that of seventh day Adventist history writ large. And so I would say that my specialty is black Adventist history, but I've also taught classes in, I taught the first class on sub-Saharan seventh day Adventist history. So that's mainly black Africa. So I taught the first class, um, as far as I know, in the world on that. And I, I also do many other types of Adventism, general Adventism, of course. I've written at length on Jewish Adventism, Asian Adventism, Armenian Adventism, you name it. 
So I would like to think of my of my specialty as a little bit wider, uh, but we can talk about Black Adventist history. That's quite an impressive feat to even do Armenian history and Asian history, and that's a wide berth of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. I'd like to hear that in the future, especially about Armenian Adventist history. That's something that we hardly hear anything of. Yes, yes. It's, it's really fascinating to see how all of these, how, how you know, we, we claim that our message is for everybody. And one of the concerns of missiologists is something called uh, specialization or culturalization. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm actually missing the primary term that I want to use, but it is it is honing and crafting, perhaps contextualization is the word that I want to use, uh, Peter, but it's honing and crafting the Adventist message for a, for a certain people. This is the Pauline notion of, I became all things to all men. So when you study Adventist missionaries, ministers, especially, let's say, those to Native Americans, they would find points in the Adventist message. Think, think of the Adventist message very broadly, not in the 28 fundamental beliefs. Think of it as broad as you can think of it, and that Jesus says, what is it, John 14, 6, I am the truth. So think of the Adventist message as everything that is true, everything that Jesus created. And then it becomes rather <laughs> large. It, it becomes universal. And so when these missionaries were trying to reach, let's say, the Pueblos or the Cherokees or the Tarahumara uh, peoples, they would actually take their cosmology and craft the Adventist message into the nomenclature and their worldview. That's what they would do. I mean, this, this is the job of the, of, the, of the missiologist. This is the job of the astute missionary to do this. And I've seen this all sorts of places. I, I, you know, when, when Adventists tried to talk to the Dalai Lama, I did a broadcast on that. Um, when Adventists tried to meet uh, Buddhists, when Adventists tried to meet, you know, the, the secular European, you know, whatever, in whichever context they are, they're, they're in. You can craft your message. You can craft our message to meet that person, to meet that mind. For instance, we don't talk much about meditation. But do you know that if we chose to focus on that, that we could write entire books and have entire philosophies on meditation? That is fully within our range. It's a very biblical concept. I would not say that I'm speaking of any particular meditations, but I definitely believe, as Ellen White says again and again, to meditate on God's word, meditate on his goodness. Uh, as David would say, be still and know that I'm God. Spend quiet time with God. Um, so there are a variety of, of, of types of meditations that I think are perfectly legitimate and that a Christian should do. Now, I mean, if you're talking about clearing your mind of all things or chanting something over and over again, I'm, I'm not speaking of that. I'm speaking of biblical meditation. <laughs> I mean, we, we often talk about how we only pick things back up or we re-pick up things after, you know, quote-unquote, the world latches onto them. You know, like now Adventist schools have organic farms. But that could have always been our lane, Peter. Do you understand what I'm saying? That is perfectly 
within our message. That is perfectly within our range. But for some reason, it has to catch on in other places and with other people. It has to trend on Twitter for us to pick it up and say, hey, you know, this is cool and this is something that we should be doing. But I see our message as all-encompassing, but it's about our emphasis. For instance, in the racial upheavals of this summer, you know that a couple of us, a number of us, were on the, you know, Adventist Chitlin circuit (laughs) talking (laughs) about, you know, the early pioneers and, and what they were saying about racial injustice. That is just one small part of things that we always could emphasize. I can talk about Adventist and climate change and bring out the same points. I can talk about Adventists and, um, and women's rights and bring out the same things. I can talk about how Adventists have um, addressed plagues, have addressed pandemics, you know, the Spanish flu, what were they saying about that? And, and, and so it's all about emphasis. And so that in itself tells you, perhaps, about a church's M.O. and about where their mind is by what they choose to emphasize. And so this has always been a burden to me, and that is that we are a people of prophecy. You know Revelation 10. It says you must do what again, Pete? Prophesy again. You must prophesy again. And, of course, 1217... when it says that we have the spirit of prophecy, that's not just Ellen White, um, or that's not just, you know, actual prophets, because we believe that, you know, it's more than, of course, it was William Foy, and then we believe that there will be other prophets. Um, but it's even more than that. It's saying that we are a people who are about the future. We are a people who are about prophecy. We're grounded in the Bible. We are people of prophecy, grounded in the Bible. But we're also forward-facing to the eschaton, to the second coming, to the judgment, um, to the earth made new. So that's our orientation. Our orientation is future and prophecy. And for people who have the spirit of prophecy and who are our entire spirit, everything that animates us as a people, is forward-facing in the future, we're just poor at seeing trends, Peter. We're poor at knowing what's going to happen in the future and speaking to it now and anticipating it. You know, for instance, why can't we know that Jesus says ethnos will rise against ethnos in the last days and that there are going to be ethnic wars and, you know, race wars? And why can't we anticipate that and gear some of our ministries toward that? I mean, we know that's coming. We know from prophecy that it's coming. Um, but instead, and, and Peter, I'm, I'm working on something, and I'll be sure to keep you in the loop about it, but Adventists have continually gotten things wrong about the last days and when Jesus is coming. Now, this is a tricky subject, because we know that his coming is contingent, Right, Peter? It may not be at a fixed time. The Bible does say that the Father does know the day and the hour. So I I could be getting into the theological weeds, but continually throughout our history, from the fall of the Ottoman Empire to Turkey's downfall, let's say, you know, in the the 10s and the 20s, to JFK, uh, uh, you know, uh, a Roman Catholic being elected president, to Y2K. I mean, you name it. And Adventists have been saying, this is it, Jesus is about to come. And Peter, they've been wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I mean, really, they've been wrong. At some time, we have to value being accurate. Okay? Because we, we have to do better than this. 
because we have the spirit of prophecy. So we should know better than this. So my point is that I'm calling on Adventists to gear their ministry, gear their message to accurate things that we see in prophecy and that we know are going to happen and to work toward that end and to not continually be caught off guard uh, because we're better than that. I mean, we have the spirit of prophecy. And so how do we continue to be caught off guard and we continue to get our talking points from Twitter trends? Okay, that's all I got to say. <laughs> now, following up on the racial unrest, the term social justice is a dirty word, especially in conservative Adventism. And there's been longstanding debates about social justice, that it's a Catholic liberation theology and whatnot. How would the Adventist pioneers, if they were living today, react to the situation with the racial climate here today? That's a good question. One of the issues that I have with certain pioneers, certain pioneers, is that they would go thus far and no further. You had some who were extremely vocal and strident, denouncing slavery and condemning America. But then when the black captives were set free, they weren't so hard on Jim Crow. They weren't so hard on the black code. Uh, when blacks were pushing for, quote-unquote, social equality, and that is we want to be seen at institutions, uh, I mean, you know, we want to be admitted, let's say, to hospitals or what have you, or we at least want to be in the same church services as, as whites, they said, oh, these Negroes are pushing for social equality. Now, these were the same people who were strident against slavery. And so what, what we have here are degrees of concern. Degrees of concern that only go this far and no further. Um, for instance, an, an, an Adventist taboo, and this is really universal, um, because nothing is really uh, unique to Adventism, uh, is interracial marriage. Anything but that. You know, blacks can be free, blacks can have equal right, but don't bring, you know, if you have a daughter, don't bring a black man home. And this, I feel, is rife in our history. It's about gradations, and, and Calvin Roth talks about this in his book, Protest and Progress. And that is, okay, no, you're not fit to lead. Um, and the black work is not big enough or important enough to have its own department. Let's say this is 1903. But then in 1909, okay, now it's time for you to have your own department. But there will be a white man over it. There's a white minister over the Negro department. <laughs> so now you're worthy to have your, de your department, but there's a white man over it. And so not until 1918 was there a black man over the department. So you can have your own department, but you can't have your own conference. And, you know, I mean, for your listeners who say that there shouldn't be separate conferences, you, you just have to put yourself back in the time where there was none, okay, in this, in, in this time of Jim Crow. Put yourself back in this time. So we're not talking 2020. That's a different story. Put yourself back in this time. And... It's always a gradualist approach. It is never truly radical like some were back in the 1840s, 50s, and 60s. And so some of the pioneers, I'm being specific, I'm being particular in my language, some of the pioneers, when they saw gross racial injustice, they were against it. But when it was more nuanced 
and the the issues were not as clear as somebody being in straight up human bondage. That's when they had a problem with um, because black equality uh, was was a problem. Now, uh, to answer your question, let's talk about someone like Ellen White or Joseph Davis, because this is this will probably be a question nearer nearer to what you want to know. To the Adventists that would say that we should not be involved in social justice, and you, you, you know what, I I get people being weary of terms. The trending stuff is kind of odious to me at times, too. Because it just becomes a term. And it just becomes a hashtag. And so you have keyboard commandos, and you have social media warriors, and you have people who are making their profiles a certain color, or putting a stamp on a picture. And that's, that, that to me, it, it, it's a form of activism, um, but that's to be trendy, I feel, and you're latching on to a popular conception. And I don't think that the, the pioneers were about that. In fact, when they were saying, at one point, their activism had a price tag, because the Review and Herald, the church's paper, it was outlawed in the South. The postal carriers would not take it to the South. And in some places in the North, it was really frowned upon because when the, when Adventists were denouncing slavery, let's say in the 1850s and really 1840s and 1850s, that you know that Christianity, Peter, was torn on the slavery issue. Churches were were breaking apart because of it. Churches were fracturing and splitting over the issue of slavery. That is one of the main points of comouterism when they were saying come out of Babylon, uh, because. Some of these Christians were supporting slavery. So they were saying, look at Revelation 18, uh, whatever it is, it says that they're bartering in the souls of men. And this is a sign of Babylon. So come out of her, my people. It wasn't just because they rejected Millerites. And Kevin Burton is really good at this, and he's, and he's really brought this out. Um, it was because they were supporting slavery. And so don't think that everybody in New England or in the Northeast Quadrant of the United States was against slavery. That was not the case. In fact, you should read the Portland Advertiser, where James and Ellen White were living for a time, and, and some of these other places where the pioneers were living. Just flat-out racist and really ugly articles on black people. Okay. So they were taking a stand it was not just paper radicalism. That's a term, paper radicalism. So you say all sorts of stuff in your in your publications, but then you don't do anything. And, and that would be tantamount to a person who is on social media these days, and they're only doing things on social media. Okay. They were not only paper radicals. They were also starting, and this is, some people say, well, this is after they became admins. No, no, no. It's a mix many were still operating underground railroad stations while they were Adventists. Um, they were still a part of it. Really, the, the problem with anti-slavery organizations, Peter, is that they kind of stopped organizing and stopped being a thing past, what, 1855? You know, past some date, they just stopped, really stopped the period. They declined in general. So it wasn't because people gave them up when they became Adventists. It was because there was a lull in them just in general. Um, and the same with the abolitionist movement. So people re really need to study that. They didn't turn in their membership to these organizations when they became Adventists. These organizations were just kind of in a lull just in general during that time. Um, but anyhow, they were preaching these things on the circuit, Adventists were. Um, they, they had them on their charts. Uh, they were leaving churches because these churches supported uh, slavery. Um, so, so there's all sorts of, uh, of course, Joseph Bates was always in contact with um, anti-slavery abolitionists and people, and I, I believe he was really supporting it while he was also founding the Adventist Church. I could share some, some evidence of that later. Um, and so they were always involved, and this was not a done deal, because bear in mind, 
that in the 1850s, it was still it was still the law. It was legal for blacks to be enslaved. So they are railing and inveighing against American laws. This is where things get really important, Peter. This is where things get really important. Slavery is legal. It is legal when they are inveighing against it, when they're denouncing it. It is legal. Furthermore, I would add another thing, that slavery is not at their doorstep. It's far away in the American South. And so this is not something that they're seeing. Because, you know, a lot of times we have this rhetoric of, oh, just address the injustice around you and uh, just do what you can to people in your neighborhood and stuff. No, slavery was far away from them. It could have been out of sight, out of mind for them if they would have wanted it, wanted it to, but but it wasn't. And then some people say, well, they were only rebuking slavery and denouncing slavery because they had a bone to pick with America, and that was the vehicle through which they assaulted America. Read the writings. <laughs> Read what they say about slavery. Ellen White is condemning slavery because blacks are humans, and they were made in the image of God. That's her basis for condemning slavery. It doesn't have anything to do with America. Now, of course, she condemns America because it's perpetuating and profiting off of that. She's not using slavery to get at America. I mean, that's, that's absurd prima facie. Okay, so they were not worried about titles and what was trending. Um, and they were, it was beyond paper radicalism, and as far as nomenclature, social justice came from the Catholics or whatever, you know, this, this stuff is so absurd. Social justice is in Amos and Joel. Social justice is in Isaiah with this fast of Isaiah 58. Social justice is Jesus. Social justice is everywhere. If you don't like the name of the term, then call it tomato. I mean, call it call it whatever you want. I mean, you know, we, we get so caught up with these terms. And since when do we not use Catholic phrases? I mean, the, the entire, I, I, mean, I mean, I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but the entire English language has pagan origins. I mean, stop using the days of the week. <laughs> you know, I mean, every term we use has some sort of odd origin. So what my, my challenge to them would be exactly what part of social justice of that term, of that concept, do you disagree with it? Do, do you disagree with it? And let's take it one by one. If you're against protest, then you are against the very basis of America because America was founded on a protest against British oppression, similar to the way black people have been oppressed. That's the exact reason America has been... Read the Charters of Freedom. Read the Declaration of Independence. Read the Constitution. America was founded on a protest of oppression, okay? Show me any part of social justice that you have a problem with, and, and I will speak to you on that. How did Adventists separate their social activism with partisan politics? You know, I, I don't think that there was a separation. Uh, you know, people, people like to be glib, I think, and, and say Adventists were one thing or another, but James White said that in 1860, Every voting Adventist voted for Abraham Lincoln. I mean, that, that's what he said. I, 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 we, we can have some receipts, okay, Peter? I'll send you these. I'll send you these references. I'll send you the PDFs where he, where they say it. I'll send you the Adventist Review where he says it. In fact, Peter, you Peter, you know this stuff because you did your master's thesis on it. I have the sources too. Uh, yes, indeed. Yeah, I mean, but I mean that that's very partisan. He said all of us voted for. Um, what was it, between Lincoln and Stephen Douglas? That's correct, Stephen Douglas. If I recall, so he said all of us voted for Lincoln in 1860. He said there's not one Adventist who supports the Confederacy, which that was not totally accurate, but the ones that he and Ellen White discovered, they, uh, they exposed, and they said, you know, we need to separate ourselves from these people. Um, so when, when they were dealing with certain principles of, of humanity, uh, and, and all of that, 
they voted partisan because they voted on issues of principle. And so I'm not sure that they did that at certain points. Now, some say that Ellen White's her statements on politics are against partisan politics. And I guess I can go with that. You know, if you read her statement like, um, what's the one in? Gospel workers? Education. Or education. No, education, message young people and all this stuff. She says, do you, do you dream that you can be in assemblies and make laws that will, that will guide the nation, make laws for the nation? She said, there's nothing wrong with these, with these ambitions. Spare no pains to reach them. Um, she talks about voting for temperance. And she says, you should even vote for temperance on the Sabbath. I think that at some point, that these were partisan issues, but she wasn't talking about partisanship. She was talking about the issue. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. And so the issue may fall on, it may fall on a partisan side. You're not voting for the partisan, you're voting for the issue. But, you know, someone needs to do a real thorough treatment of Ellen White and the pioneers on politics. And it, it, it has not been done. Uh, you do have Dr. Morgan's book, Adventism in the American Republic, and you have some white estate treatments. You have Seeking the, Sanct- Seeking the Sanctuary and different works like that. But I'm talking about something that really gets down into the weeds on early Adventists and politics, because it's tricky, Peter, and I, I, I'm not sure we can say any one thing, because at, at times they, when slavery was an issue, they did vote partisan. I mean, they voted for Abraham Lincoln, who was a Republican. That's a different story. I'm not telling you to go vote Republican. So sometimes they did. There was an issue of principle there. So that's really hard to answer. It would be definitely nice to have some sort of treatment on the issue, because this 2020, this recent election politics has been dividing our church in such a profound way, severely. You have partisans on both sides advocating their favorite political candidate. And so a treatment on the pioneers would be very, very vital to bring some unity and healing in the church. We have Adventist ministers. Yeah, well, well, Peter, the thing is, is that when you look at the sort of uh, partisanship that is dividing the church, everyone claims and I am not, I'm not even making a judgment on their claim, but everyone claimed, because, you know, by the way, as a historian, I'm obviously biased, but I try to keep my biases at a minimum when I'm talking history. I mean, if, if we were to have a personal conversation, that would be different. But when I'm talking history, I try to keep my biases out of the picture. But all of these Adventists who you say are divided, they would say that they're divided over principle. Does that make sense? And not partisanship. <laughs> they would say that my partisan statements are my principles. And so now you really have a problem. I mean, that, that is a genuine fissure, uh, a genuine schism. I don't think that anything can heal that. Now you have conflicting principles that Adventists cannot agree on. So I, I think that we are genuinely divided, Peter, and um, nothing, nothing can heal that divide. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's that's a genuine divide. And, and you know, some divides you may chalk up and say, this is diversity in Christ, uh, and, and this is fine. Others, you may say, you know, I, I really can't walk with this person because we're not agreed. It's, it's different from case to case. But you know that there are some issues that, you know, there, there could be an Adventist civil war over, and we would never agree on these issues. And so I'm sort of honoring your statement, Peter, and saying that I don't think that anything could unify some of the issues that we're divided on. Um, and, and I mean, I, I, I see that sincerely, uh, <laughs> but with with no variableness or shadow of turning. I'm sure about that. (laughs) The political divide has seeped into our eschatology because you have one end, you have 
those that support the current president sitting right now, uh, the concern prophetically is apostate Protestantism, the evangelicals. Then you have the left, the incoming president. You have the concern about the Great Reset, climate change, aligning themselves with the papacy. And so you have a conflict of two ideas, even prophetically. And I don't know, in, in order for the latter rain to fall, we need to have some sort of consensus, I hope. Well, do you agree with me when I say that our disagreements are not artificial? They are very deep. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I, I, I mean, so, you know, no, no treatment of what Ellen White believed about politics or no treatment of the pioneers or probably even a word from God or a word from a new prophet would heal the divisions that we have because they're serious. Now, the question is, are, are they important to God? That, to me, that is the key question. Are our differences in principles and what we see unfolding in today's political world, are, we, are our principles at odds with God or with the Bible? That would be my sticking point. That's the question that I would ask. And so, you know, if we could all come together on the basic principles that honor, like, like for instance, let's take, let's take climate change, okay? The Bible says that we are to be stewards and keepers of, of the earth. And of course, if you want to talk to eschaton, uh, God says in Revelation, I would destroy those who destroy the earth. Okay? So there is a basic fundamental principle of stewardship for the earth. We may all come out in different places as to what exactly that looks like. But I know for sure it's being responsible and not being excessive and doing things that would keep the earth in as good a shape as possible or not doing things that would, you know, that would keep the earth in as good. I think that everybody could agree. I think that's reasonable, Peter, for everybody. Um, that, to me, would be a basic principle. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes, definitely. Uh, common points that we can unite on. Yeah, yes, yes. And so maybe, <laughs> and, and, and this is, this is, this is um, aspirational thinking, but maybe in, in, everyone, in every one of those areas, we could agree on the basics, and that is it is wrong, evil, unacceptable for a police officer to kneel on a black man's neck on anyone's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. <laughs> okay. You know, these are things that everybody can rally around. And so I think that when we talk, you know, you as a teacher minister, when we talk, these are the things that we should press home and get unity on these things. Let's, as in the Bible, as in Isaiah 58, we know that our mission is to find those who are needy, find those who are not as well off, find those who are marginalized, and help them, bring them up. These are things that we should be agreed upon. And so I think that these are the things that we should stress and talk about and get everyone on the same page with. Now let's play Adventist Mythbusters. I have a series of questions. Ellen White says that interracial marriages are a sin. She never says that they're a sin. The context in which she counsels against, there's, there's one famous instance in which a black man and a white woman want to get married. Uh, if memory serves me, they're in Colorado. Uh, but I, I, I just need to check my notes because I could be conflating another issue. But this black man wants to marry this white woman. And they are in the midst of the Jim Crow years in which what's done in the church is affecting their mission, their missions to blacks and whites. And really, I take Ellen White's point when she says that this was not just happening in the South, because that's actually accurate. It was happening in other places, in the North, 
um, whatever you would consider St. Louis, because you know, you know, this is let's say if it's St. Louis in like let's say the late 1880s, it's not a slave state anymore because <laughs> you know obviously slavery has been outlawed. Some places in the West, you name it, and so her conception was that in order for Adventists to have evangelistic success, uh, that we should not interracially marry. And I believe that was a that was a contextual statement. She was not speaking of the eternal principles um, of God or the Bible, but she was making that statement in a context. As she says plenty of times, she says, circumstances changes things. I believe that's, that's a direct quote. She says that many times. Circumstances change things. And the famous uh, quote where she says, until the Lord shows us a better way. And so these were expedient. These were expedients uh, to do for the Adventists um, so that the Adventists could fulfill their raison d'etre uh, of preaching the gospel to the world. Now, let me say something to your listeners. This is very important to say. All I want you to do is just understand Ellen White. I think that that's all we've ever asked for. Just to understand where she's coming from. I'm not dogmatic like I used to be, like you have to believe her. I want you to understand that the most important thing to her was getting people saved. You can do what you want to with everything else. You can say, oh, she shouldn't have done that. That was racist. That, that's not the ideal. I'm telling you where I think she was coming from in her head because she would say this stuff. She would say, I don't want to do this. This pains me. But I'm saying this because this seems to be best so that we can get the gospel to everybody, because for her, that was primary. Now, I can speak a little more on she did believe that we should meet people's needs and that those needs were, were on par with the gospel because you had to meet their needs in order to give them the gospel, and, and, and vice versa. She had no more compassion for humans. Um, but as far as placing racial, the word that they used to use was equality or social equity, and it's probably different than the way that we think of it now. Believe me, the, the terms have changed. When she was saying that, she meant blacks and whites, let's say, worshiping um, in the same sanctuary. That's what was called racial equality back in the day. Okay? So she was saying, by doing that, that will subvert or undermine our ability to preach the gospel uh, to people. And, I, you know, I mean, the, the evidence seems to bear that out. Like I said, you've done research on this. You know, they were run out of Mississippi. Uh, they, they were run out. In fact, you know, the, the way that they left Mississippi was with guns and whips pointed at them. You know, I mean, they would just run out of there. Um, and that's other places as well. And so, <laughs> furthermore, let me just add some more dynamics to this. There were so many blacks back in the day who were not for integration. Peter, are you hearing me? <laughs> I'm like, they, they, were not, they were not pushing integration because they were saying, it's not good for us. They were saying, do you really want a teacher? You finally get in a white school and our black kids have a teacher and a white woman that thinks that they're less than human who's teaching them. Do we really want that? Do, like, like some people... And I never forget when I started actually reading newspaper coverage and reading what people were saying all during the civil rights movement, before the civil rights movement proper and all this stuff. They were saying, are, and these were black people, are these, let's say the Little Rock Nine, one of whom was an Adventist, of course, Terrence Roberts, are these Negroes crazy? <laughs> Going to Little Rock Central High School with rocks and spit flying at them and sitting in this classroom and undergoing this racial persecution at all times while trying to learn. <laughs> what in the world? So it's like there were always blacks who were saying, we don't want to be integrated either. Let's just do our, let, hey, let's have our own worship service. What's wrong with that? 
but throughout different times in American history and, and different sensibilities, some were pushing for integration. Some blacks were pushing for integration. Some whites were pushing for integration. But I'm telling you, this was not even a consensus. This is what we believe now. Booker T. Washington was like, we're fine having our own Negro school. Let's build ourselves up. You know, as a race, you know, we've been held down for two, three hundred years. Let's build ourselves up. We need to build ourselves up away from everybody else. That's fine. And so, you know, when you take Ellen White's voice and you say, because she has a temporary expedient, she said that there should be segregation where it's the custom. And to say that that's racist, all such people were saying that, Peter, and, 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 and there was no racist intent. They just thought that that was the best modus operandi uh, for the time. That's my long answer to that question. Now, I can show you documents and articles and interviews and anecdotes where Adventists were still using those unlike quotes into the 1980s. And, and even today, I, I think that they're still used today. Oh, yeah, they're still being used today. That's why I asked the question. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and to me, that's when it's coming from like a racist place because that's not where we are. Now, I have people who I love, and I won't get too personal, who are products of interracial uh, marriages. And I'm saying, you know, in the 40s, 50s, 60s. And they were persecuted because of that. And there were different family dynamics because of that. So I'm saying that it is a fact, and I'm saying this strongly, that in our history, there has been persecution around that. Nobody would deny that. But as far as saying it now and, you know, into the 80s, 90s, 2000s, that's a different story. You know, there there does come a time where it's just flat out racism. Uh, And to those couples, you know, if if you're embarking upon an interracial marriage and the parents aren't for it, (laughs) that's something you have to work out you know, on your own, because there are still people who aren't, you know, parents and and, and other relatives and other dynamics that you may still need to consider, you know, so I mean, just, just in every situation, you know, try to have God's wisdom about it. So do you think it's also a personal safety issue that came into play with these statements? Definitely, definitely. Ellen White was speaking, especially in the 1890s when she was in Australia, and her son, Edson, and daughter-in-law, Emma, were in Mississippi. She wanted them to be saved. And she wanted the Adventist ministers and evangelists and workers to be saved. And it was a volatile atmosphere, because you know what happened with Nate Olvin and his wife, and Fred Rogers and the Southern Missionary Society, about how they got run out of uh, Mississippi, you know what happened, let's say, with Amira Steele, uh, the first orphan home that she set up in Chattanooga was uh, burned to the ground. Other Adventists report this in the South, uh, because first of all, what you need to understand is that Adventism itself was a persecution point in the South. It was seen as a Jewish religion, quote-unquote a Jewish religion, from, from the North. It was a Yankee religion. And there were mobs who rode out on people just for being Adventists alone. And this intensified during the 1890s with the Sunday Blue Laws. And so there was a persecution that would come on you just for being Adventists alone. That, that could come on you just for being Adventists alone. And so they didn't want to distinguish themselves even more as a racially mixing religion on top of that. They saw it as, you know, we can't take that as well. And so, you know, you're, you're having a worship service or you're, you're teaching kids or what have you. And, you know, a white terrorist organization rolls on you, you know I mean? <laughs> you know, they firebomb you or whatever. 
we really can't have that. So, yes, it was a safety issue. Next MythBuster question. Ellen White said that amalgamations were African-Americans. You know, the whole amalgamation question has always been so fascinating to me, first of all, because I'm into cryptozoology. And so, uh, you know, I'm into people seeing animals and things and they don't quite know what it is. And and that whole study is fascinating to me. Um, And so when I was growing up, I heard that she said that man and beasts actually mixed. And so I was just forever fascinated with that. You know, uh, Peter, that's all in our culture. Um, From centaurs to mermaids to to cartoons to television. That's always been in our culture. You know, um, um, these amalgams of, of of men and beasts. The issue with Ellen White is, first of all, when she first made the statement, and I, I, I wish that I had the, um, the statements just to bring up and talk, but I can, I can pretty much speak from memory. She first made them in Spiritual Gifts, which was the predecessor to Patriarchs and Prophets. And this is in the early 1860s. At the same time, she was advocating and pushing for the eradication of slavery based on the full humanity of black people. This point cannot be forgotten. At the same time that they claim that she was saying that blacks were not human, she says repeatedly, I mean ad nauseum, that blacks were fully human, made in the image of God, and that's why they should not be enslaved. So this would be a total contradiction if you say that she's making these same statements at that time. Now, she never says what she means by amalgamation. And that if she's talking about, she never says who she was talking about or what she meant. So she never mentions any races. Now, people say, well, Uriah Smith, when he was trying to defend her, he said that uh, there were the, uh, in, the, the digger Indians, D-I-G-G-E-R Indians, and the Hottentot and the Bushmen of Africa. And, but he didn't say that L.O.I. was talking about them. You need to read his statements also. I don't think that she corroborated his statement. Um, there's no indication that she did. Some people say, well, if she didn't say anything against it, did she corroborate it? I would say that's not, you know, that, that's not the way, that's not how historians and how people who look at the past, that's not the way they, that they do things. So my response to that is that she never said that it was about blacks or anybody's. Um, she was affirming the full humanity of blacks during that time. And that was the entire basis on which she condemned slavery. Um, and then furthermore, I believe that it's a, that she was drawing from Yashir or Jashir. And I believe it is four verse 12. Uh, back then Adventists had the Apocrypha in their Bible. I'm saying the intertestamental books. And they frequently referred to the Apocrypha. And John Andrews had a sermon from the Apocrypha in the Adventist Review. It's very interesting. It's an entire sermon based on an Apocrypha text. And she said that the Apocrypha books, the hidden books, uh, would be important to those in the last time and to those in the last days. So she used the Apocrypha books. And if you read what Jashir says, uh, it seems like she's she's quoting from Jashir. It's almost it, it, the language is very very similar. And as to what she meant, Peter, uh, that has been debated all the way up into the 1920s, 30s with Frank Marsh and George McCready Price. Um, some say that she meant what the Bible seems to say in Genesis 6, and that is that what the sons of the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and so it is being unequally yoked with unbelievers. Others say that she literally meant that there was DNA tampering, uh, and that humans were amalgamating men and animals. Um, interestingly, Modern Christians, like especially evangelicals, 
they still interpret Genesis 6, what do they call them, the, uh, the Nephilim? They said that the Nephilim, that, that essentially men, holy men, uh, mated with, with demons, with fallen angels, and they produced offspring. So a, a lot of people have interesting interpretations of that Genesis 6 text and what they were doing before the flood. Uh, I don't know what Ellen White actually meant, but I know that when there was that confusion and when some people said that she was applying it to black people, she took it out. So that right there is evidence in and of itself that she was not talking about black people. She, she took it out when there was that confusion about it. And it does not appear in patriarchs and prophets. So that would be my response. Final question. Is there a path forward for racial healing within the Seventh Avenue Church? Yes. I think that this is something that I've heard a lot, but I, I want it to really be made good on. There's a number of times in the writings of Ellen White and in real life in which Adventists were told, Ellen White told them, that they were not true Adventists, they were not true Christians, because of the racism in their lives, because, of, because they were supporting racism. And what I believe was an unprecedented move in the church in 1985, the General Conference in session voted a fundamental belief, unity in Christ. And I believe it's number 13 today, unity in Christ. And it says that the, the true Christian sees no distinction between races, genders, ethnicities, peoples. And it says it, in fact, it says it a couple of times in the fundamental belief. And they love and treat everyone equally as in Christ. And this is said for the baptismal vow. So ostensibly, in order to become a Seventh-day Adventist, you must denounce racism and embrace racial equality. Did you get that, Peter? Amen. Most definitely, <laughs> this yes. is, I, mean, I mean, this is key. So this is a fundamental belief. And the NAD, in fact, voted that, I believe it's 1979, it was a little bit before that, that a statement on racial equality would be said in the baptismal vow. So this was even before 1985. So from the beginning of our history to the current day, We've always believed that in order to be a true Adventist and a true Christian, you must denounce racism and believe in racial equality. And so we have a path going forward. We have it in the documents. We have it as something that all true Adventists, all real Adventists, all real Christians have agreed upon and believe in. Now, I think... It's up to us to really press each other to practice what Adventists have always believed. And this sounds trite. I mean, it's, and you say, oh, obviously, we've always been trying to encourage each other to practice what we believe. But I'm saying especially when it comes to what matters, and that is when Jesus is talking, Matthew 25, and in 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 Ellen White's chapter in Desire of Ages on um, uh, the name of it slipping me, but is it the least of these? I think that's the name of the chapter. And she seems to say that the only criteria in the judgment will be how you treat others. Read that chapter again. I think that she's overemphasizing a point to emphasize a point, if you get my drift. Uh, but that is the quintessence that is the essence of Christ-likeness as to how we treat others. 
And this is not a, a doctrine to take the back seat to any other. This is where we must really apply what we believe and say everything revolves around how we treat each other. And the biggest issue we have of treating each other are differences. Be they what they may, are differences. And so we can link this to the Sabbath. Read Isaiah 58. Where Isaiah seems to say that true Sabbath keeping is a fast in which you have a certain conception of a person in order to help them. <laughs> whether that's a poor person, whether it's someone who is sick, whatever, you have the love in your heart to help them, and only then can you truly keep the Sabbath. Early Adventists were big on talking about the judgment, and they linked the judgment with slavery and racism. And they said, you have to get rid of this in your heart, or else you will not pass the judgment. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very straightforward way of thinking. It's like, you know, how, how is Jesus going to judge you and you're racist? You're, you're, you're not going to pass that bar. And so every one of the doctrines they could link to treating everyone with love as Jesus does. That's the commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. Those are the commandments. And so I think that the way to racial healing and reconciliation is to say that we can no longer do what we've done and artificially put certain doctrines in the back burner. If our doctrines are not about loving God supremely and loving your neighbor as yourself, then then what are they about? I mean, I mean, Peter, a doctrine was never something on a sheet of paper or something on a computer screen or something that you simply recite. It was always supposed to reflect reality. So when we say that Jesus died for everyone, that's a reality, and we're supposed to have that same love for everyone as he did when our very reason for existence is to preach the gospel to everyone on the earth. Understand that we must become one with each culture that we do that with. We must love each soul to find them and to go preach to them. Like, that is the greatest checker of racism right there, that we must preach to everybody. So we must come in contact with them. We must love them. We must labor to win them. We must be willing to risk it all to save their souls. This is in Revelation 14, 6 and 7. And so these very things are built into everything that we believe. And so if we can some, somehow start emphasizing the things that really matter. Um, and, and, and I'm not even going to take the exclusion of other things because that's what matters. <laughs> that is what matters. When, when you are praying to God to cleanse your soul so that you can stand in the investigative judgment when he comes to your name, part of that is getting rid of the hatred uh, and the difference that you have with other humans because of whatever reason. How is that not a part of it? We think it's about overeating or eating cheese or listening to a certain sort of music or doing this or doing that. How would looking down on someone for something cosmetic, how would that not be a part of getting ready for the judgment and getting ready for the second coming? So I would just say the, the way to racial healing is uh, to start emphasizing what it really means to be an Adventist, what it really means to be in Christ and, and to be ready for his coming. Dr. Baker, thank you so much for being part of our podcast here today. You're invited anytime to uh, expound on whatever points that you want to do for our audience. And we really sincerely appreciate your time. I know your time is valuable. And uh, before we close, can you say a closing word of prayer for us? Yes. Lord, we thank you for this time that Peter and I and his listeners can talk. We do want to ask that you will make us like Jesus, who saw in every person 
a soul for whom Christ died. Apart from all of the cosmetics, uh, the artificial things that we see, Jesus saw someone who he loved infinitely and who he gave everything for. And so all we're asking for is that same love. It's that same love for every single person on this earth. That is all we are asking for. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.